Please open your Bibles with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll draw our attention right to the end of that chapter for our reading. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, as has been mentioned, we're beginning today a four-part series on prayer. So to combine last Sunday with the coming four Sundays, counting this one, it's Word and Prayer. Last Sunday, Brother Hunter helped us to let the Word read us. Not just get in the Word, but get the Word of God in us. Scripture memorization and meditation, and now we'll look at the consequence of that. The more the truth of God saturates deep into our souls, the more a right response to God comes out of our heart. And that response is prayer. So a four-part series. This series has been uh, something we've anticipated and really agonized over. Maybe you think, uh, I don't know what you think <laughs> about our sermon planning and how it all unfolds, but we did agonize over it. I mean, even uh, one of our elders in, in great seriousness said, we don't, we don't need a series on prayer as we were thinking about it. And he said, we just need to do it. And uh, I, that resonates very deeply with me. Uh, over a year ago, I knew that a sabbatical would be coming for me in the months of May and June this year. So I asked the people that I think know me the best, what weaknesses do you see in my life? Uh, what, what ways could I use that sabbatical strategically? I prayed about that very same matter. Uh, the Lord showed me no shortage of weaknesses in my life. So I had to narrow it down to just a few that I would spend those two months searching Scripture, seeking God's face, compiling some other good resources. And uh, the main theme of those two months of my life were dedicated to seeking the Lord to increase my own prayer life. And uh, the Lord blessed me through that. We've given our whole church, all the members, a book that's very small, more like a booklet. Enjoy your prayer life. We're encouraging you all to read that book throughout the weeks of this sermon series. You could read the whole thing in one sitting. That's perfectly fine. But to take those one page or one and a half page chapters and just mull and meditate over those, let those encourage you. If you didn't get that book and you weren't at our members meeting, there's a box in the back labeled for every member. And uh, if you'll just grab that, you'll get that resource and others. Well, today we want to start with the ultimate goal. What's the point? Why does prayer exist? Why did God create this little invention where redeemed human beings get to interact with the God of the universe? So that's where we'll begin today. Lord willing, next Sunday we'll look at the book of Acts, and dive into agreeing with God's will in prayer, praying according to His Word. Lord willing, the week after that, we'll look at the little one-page letter of Jude at the end of our, the Bible, and we'll look at the fuel for a life of prayer that's depending on the power and the aid of the Holy Spirit. True Spirit-generated prayer. And then finally, uh, four weeks from now, we'll look at 1 Chronicles 29, amplifying our voices in prayer. How can you make your prayer 
reverberate more in the ear of God. And the Bible's answer to that is do it with other people. And we'll look at corporate prayer. So this week, embracing the goal of prayer, the glorification of Jesus. If God already knows the stuff that we would ask Him about, why should we pray? And if you haven't asked that question, then you hadn't been really honest about your own interaction with the Lord and with His Word. Do my prayers actually change anything? What if I don't pray? Will the circumstances about which I might have prayed turn out any differently? Or maybe in a little more pessimistic spirit, if we were honest enough to admit it, I wonder how many of us wonder, does God care to be bothered with the little petitions of my life? He has a big universe to run. Or another way, when I do muster up the energy it seems to ask Him or petition Him or request from Him, are the kinds of things that I'm asking Him to do the kinds of things that He would like to do? How can I know I'm asking the type of things that please Him? Well, the sermon in a sentence, as we prepare to read the passage, I trust will become obvious. The sermon in a sentence would be this, to ignite and sustain a God-honoring prayer life, we must be captured by the ultimate reason that prayer exists in the first place. If we don't know why God gave us this great gift, we won't use it well. But if we are captured with His reason for why prayer exists, and I mean ultimately, there are a lot of reasons prayer exists, but I'm talking ultimately, why does prayer exist? If we'll be captured by that, then I trust, as that sentence said, our prayer life will be ignited and sustained for the long haul. The Bible does give us many reasons for why we should pray, but today we're asking about that one reason. What is the ultimate, the main reason and goal for prayer? The sermon title is Embracing the Goal of Prayer, The Glorification of Jesus. If our destination is uncertain, when we set out on a journey, whether driving or walking or hiking or whatever it may be, if our destination is uncertain, we will inevitably wander aimlessly. We will get lost and distracted. We will give up. We will turn around. Or, maybe best case scenario, we will be significantly delayed and we will experience those delays repeatedly. We must have the goal in mind and that is, I want to lay before you the glorification of the Lord Jesus. With that in mind, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation. Hear God's Word. To this end also, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling, and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus 
will be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, would you join me in doing the only obvious thing we should do after reading a passage like that? (laughs) And ask for God's help as we consider it. Join me at the throne of grace. Father, as Paul prayed under inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the church at Thessalonica, so I now pray for us today and for this congregation. I pray for Grace Church Memphis and ask that You, O God, will count us worthy of our calling, that You will fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that, so that, so that, the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in us collectively as a whole body, a local church, and so that we together will be glorified in Christ. Do this, Lord, according to Your own grace and to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, in the city of Thessalonica where Paul had visited on his second missionary journey and to whom he writes in this letter, which was obviously preceded by 1 Thessalonians, there were three main issues going on in the city and particularly the church. First, when Paul writes this letter, 2 Thessalonians, his issue is he wants to encourage them to be faithful to the Lord in the midst of their persecutions. That's going to become apparent as we look back in chapter 1. Second, he wanted to educate them to live faithfully in light of the second coming of Jesus. There was some confusion in the church about that. That's mainly what chapter 2 of this letter is about. Living faithfully in light of the Lord's return. And three, which chapter 3 is mainly about, Paul wanted to instruct and, and educate the church about how to handle professing Christians who were taking advantage of other Christians because they refused to work. So they were lazy and they were extorting these other generous brothers and sisters. And perhaps their laziness was owing to some theological misunderstanding about the second coming. Hey, Jesus, come back tomorrow. Why go to work today? And so they were kind of mooching off the other generous generous, uh, Christians in their church. But chapter 1 deals with also three things under that big heading of being faithful to the Lord in the midst of their persecution, chapter 1 breaks down after a little opening greeting in the first couple of verses. It breaks down into thanksgiving for the church, verse 3 and 4. The justice of God, which will be on clear display for everybody in verses 5-10 to at the return of Jesus. And in our passage, His prayer for the saints verses 11 and 12. Well, that's kind of the breakdown of the book and the breakdown of the chapter. But these two little verses, verses 11 and 12, actually have four parts to them. So it breaks down into different parts. I want your eyes just to fall on verse 11 and verse 12. There is the opening phrase of verse 11, to this end or for this reason, That's the reason Paul was moved to pray for them always. Second, there's the three huge prayer requests he makes for them. The three requests. That's in verse 11. Third, in verse 12, there's the ultimate purpose. It's a 
dual, double purpose for which He offers His prayers for this church. And then finally, there's the enabling power in verse 12. The required fuel for all this to take place. So let's just go into those four areas and it'll take us back into the chapter in the bigger Thessalonian context. Number one, verse 11, to this end. And if you'll just see these three verses, uh, these two verses breaking down into those four ways, you'll see there's three reasons God prays for them. There's three requests Paul makes. There's a dual purpose for which he prays, and then there's required fuel. So to this end, there are three reasons Paul prays for them. Verse eleven, always. He's referring to the previous ten verses and all the material which preceded that that's contained in 1 Thessalonians, for this reason, or to this end, I always pray for you. And there are three of them given in chapter 1. First, because their faith is getting bigger and bigger. That's in verse 3. To this end, verse 11, I pray for you always. To what end, Paul? Because the Thessalonians' faith just keeps growing. Every time I look back and every time I hear a report, the faith that I once saw, it's now more mature and it's bigger. Verse 3, because your faith is greatly enlarged. This is a verse that Paul wants you to see and not only read. And good writers do help you to see their sentences, don't they? Can you see this sentence? This little sentence actually gets bigger every time you read it. If you read it, rightly because the time it takes you to back up and start over reading that little phrase in verse 3 the product in the verse has already expanded the niv says it this way because your faith is growing more and more the king james says because your faith groweth exceedingly the esv because your faith is growing abundantly the greek word which is rarely used in the new testament it it's present but it's active And it's a verb. It's literally to grow beyond the ability to measure. Greatly enlarged. And it's for this reason Paul prays with great thanksgiving for this church. So now let's apply this. Brothers and sisters, if you ever see somebody's faith growing, you may have substantial concerns about lots of other stuff in their life. But if you see genuine, cling to Jesus faith growing, if you see it taking off, if you see it getting bigger, it should be a cause for immediate thanksgiving in prayer for that person and for what God is doing in their life because that is a sure sign of the great grace and the active work of the Holy Spirit in their life. Is your faith growing? Do you know the faith of others that is growing? Then Give God thanks as soon as you see their love for Jesus expanding. The second reason, not only their faith getting bigger and bigger, but also, this is in verse 3 as well, the love from each one of them toward the others is also growing bigger and bigger. Do you see it in verse 3? The love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. There's another picture for us to see rather than just to read. Instead of only seeing it in proportion, we're also to see it in people. When you plug that verse into your flowchart generator, 
every single arrow in it points every direction. The arrows are not made out of lines. The material of the arrows is made out of love. Do you see this verse? The love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. And it's for this reason, Paul says, thank you God for that church. Do you know anybody's love for any other believer that's getting any bigger? If so, let our first response be, thank you God for the work of the Holy Spirit in that person. Could you imagine belonging to a church like that? The love of every single person toward every other person is only on the increase. I can because I do. This is the work God's doing among us, isn't it? As the NIV renders it, the love all of you have toward one another is increasing. Or the King James, the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Or the ESV, the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. The Greek in this word is literally to superabound or to exist in abundance. The buckets can't contain the produce. There's too much love in this church. And that's a good thing. Such churches must exist because Paul straight up told the Thessalonians that they are that church. And not only the Thessalonians, but so many times, does your mind recall now, those of you who've been familiarizing yourself with Scripture, does your mind recall that this is a theme that is just replete in the New Testament? It seems that every epistle we turn to, minus only a couple, we're hearing commendations from the Apostle under inspiration of the Spirit for this particular grace in the local churches. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. They thank God for that. We could go on and on with examples like that from the New Testament. So I want to say again, brothers and sisters, just like faith being on the rise, being a cause for praise to God, we pray for you always because your faith is getting bigger. So also, when we see someone's love for the people of the Lord Jesus, particularly the members of their own local church, growing, taking off, it should be a cause for thanksgiving and our prayers for them because it is a sure sign of the great grace and work of our great God. But not only is it a sign of His grace, let's not leave this point, love for one another in the church. Let's not leave this point without underlying, underlining that this word is agape. Your God-given love. Your God-like love for each other. Your Gospel love for each other. Not only is it a sign of God's grace, but you do know, I know, you know, you do know, the Bible also makes this a test for true conversion. What if you don't love the brothers and sisters in your church who are truly in Christ and seeking to follow Him? What if you don't love them? What if your love for them is not on the increase? 
by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 3.10 Brothers and sisters, when we see this work of grace, we are seeing God's own kids made obvious. And we should say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now look, I don't have much in common with most of you. But if we have Christ in common, we have everything in common. We're not talking about secondary, superficial stuff that makes us connected to each other or love each other. We're talking about the most substantial reason of all. We're both part of the family of God. So that's the second reason. Your faith is getting bigger. You're loving each other. And it's to this end, verse 11, I'm always praying for you. There's a third reason. And that is verse 4, because of their continued perseverance amid many persecutions and afflictions. Verse 4 says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you, all, uh, which you endure. Perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions. Persecutions come. Perseverance keeps happening. Persecutions come. Perseverance keeps happening. The backstory on this perseverance because of these persecutions can be found in Acts 17 and in 1 Thessalonians. In Acts 17, I'll give you two verses. When Paul was initially in Thessalonica and the handful of people were coming to faith in Christ. Severe persecutions broke out. Acts 17.5 But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. They literally, the verse says, formed a mob. It was active, physical persecution. Furthermore, we read in 1 Thessalonians more about this situation when Timothy had reported back to Paul after he was in Thessalonica and run out of the city. He sends Timothy. Timothy comes back and tells Paul what's going on in the church. And we find verses like this. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord having received the Word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that great? Or 1 Thessalonians 2 says, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, they are not pleasing to God, but hostile toward all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the result that they are always filling up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. There were obviously some hostile people in Thessalonica and hostile against the Christ and against His church. Finally, in 1 Thessalonians 3, we read again, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the Gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. 
For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. The Thessalonian Christians though, now get this, kept believing the Gospel. What's the measurable evidence that God is at work in a church? Is it numbers? Is it capacity of people? Is it size of budget? Is it opulence of building? What is the evidence that God is there? Do you know what Paul would say to that over and over in his letters? That no matter what hardship comes upon you, you still believe the Gospel. If you believe the Gospel today, guess who's working in your life? God is. And Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, even though you're experiencing persecution and affliction, you are still persevering. You are still believing the Gospel. And this in and of itself is proof positive that the living God is at work in your life and that is reason enough for me to give Him thanks. Paul prays with great thanks because of their perseverance. Now, I also want you to notice before we leave this point that Paul does not mainly pray for their circumstances to change. But rather, that God would keep them faithful in the midst of their challenges. I don't think it's opposed to Scripture to pray for relief from persecution. Much of the New Testament journeys of Paul went on the routes they went on so that he could collect from the saints that were not suffering to take monetary resources to the saints in Jerusalem who were suffering. I'm not suggesting that we should not pray for relief. But I am especially saying that we should pray mainly not for God to change our circumstances, but to change us. And you don't even get a hint in Thessalonians that Paul prays to change the circumstances. But that God would keep them faithful. That they would keep believing the Gospel. That they would keep walking with Jesus. So these are three of the reasons, A, B, and C, behind the meaning of to this end in verse 11. Number two, not only those three reasons, but the three huge requests Paul prays for them. I appreciate it when people tell me what they're praying for me. And I like to ask people, who are you asking? <laughs> to whom are you praying? I love when people tell me what they're praying for me. It encourages us when people share that with us. And Paul tells the Thessalonians specifically what he is praying for them. This is in verse 11, and there are three requests. To this end, we pray for you always. One, that our God will count you worthy of your calling. Two, and fulfill every good desire for every desire for goodness. Three, and the work of faith with power. Pray that God will first count you worthy of your calling. Count you worthy of your calling. Count you worthy of your calling. This calling refers to God's call on our lives to be His children. We know that because Paul references that very call other places in the Thessalonian letters, not to mention other letters to other churches. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
Paul writes, we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you, what calling? Into His own kingdom and glory. That's the call. And now Paul's praying, I want to see God do something in you that you can't do on your own. I want Him to make you worthy of that call. We're going to get into that in just a moment, but think about how gigantic that prayer is. Paul also says in 2 Thessalonians, I believe chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our Gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul prays in our verse that God would count us worthy of our calling, that's the calling he's talking about. We must notice the connection to verse 5 in this same chapter. 2 Thessalonians 1.5 So that you will be considered worthy of the Kingdom of God for which you are suffering. That's the kind of worth he's talking about. You're called to his kingdom, and I'm praying that God will make you worthy of that kingdom. That's not a future accomplishment that you need to take care of so that maybe you can slide into heaven by the skin of your teeth. That's not what he's talking about. That you live in such a way that at the end of the day, God weighs your good and weighs your bad, and you've just done enough so that the scales tip in your favor and you get to be in God's heaven when you die. That's not what he's talking about when he says, I'm praying that you'll be worthy of God's call. In verse 5, Paul emphasizes that the Thessalonians will be considered worthy when Jesus returns because of their perseverance in trials. You can see that in verses 4 and 5. In this verse, he's praying because that is a reality, and God has already accomplished it in Christ, and it is a promise of the Gospel, I'm praying that you will remain that way now. Which is another way to say, stay tethered to the whole way anybody's ever counted worthy, and His name is Jesus. So that's His first request. That God would count you worthy of your calling. His second request is in verse 11, that God would fulfill your every desire for goodness. To this end, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness. Every desire for goodness. This means the things that accord with the good pleasure of God. The will of God. Paul prays that the Thessalonians would experience the fulfillment of those things. I I love our corporate prayer meeting. It just lets me strike through so much stuff in my sermon notes week after week after week because a bunch of you pray a bunch of verses that I was planning to say. And I love that God does it that way. I was going to quote Colossians chapter 1, which was prayed earlier. I was going to reference one of the allusions to the Old Testament in Isaiah that was prayed earlier. The point is this. Every desire for goodness. Do you want to know what good desires are? 
God's desires. There's nobody good but one. Our God, all the good desires that the people of God have are the desires that are wrought in us, that are consistent with God's own desires, which we, found, which we find revealed to us objectively and explicitly in His Word. And when we desire to do the things that God tells us please Him, Paul's praying, oh God, fulfill it in the church at Thessalonica. All the good stuff that you've said you want to do in your people, they desire that. Now God, do it in them. What a way to pray for people. It's the Ephesians 2.10 life that we would walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So that's the desire for goodness. And Paul prays that gigantic prayer for them. Basically, that God's will would be done in the church. But third, he requests, also in verse 11, that God would fulfill the work of faith with power. The work of faith with power. This refers to a whole life that flows out of faith. We don't divorce our life from God ever. All of life lived before the face of God, knowing Hebrews 11.6, God said it the way He meant to say it. There was no mistake. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that God is and that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. So Paul is praying that God would fulfill the work of faith in them with power that their whole life would flow from their faith in their sovereign. While some in the church were refusing to work, Paul emphasizes work, the work of faith, I'm praying that for you, church, Paul says. While some in the church, chapter 3, were refusing to work, Paul wants the church to know that true spiritual power is the intervention of God in the lives of those whose efforts are done in faith. So whose work is it? Mine or God's? Yes. The work of faith with power. You're working in the aroma of believing the Gospel And God is powerfully accomplishing His purposes as you work. It's true spiritual power. It's simultaneously our working and the work that God fulfills. John Calvin says about this phrase, Paul calls it a work with regard to God who works or produces faith in us as though He had said, that He may complete the building of the faith which He already began in you. This is what James is talking about. Faith without works is dead. Show me your faith by what you do. That's what Paul's praying for them. That they would live out a life of faith. It's what Piper refers to as acting the miracle. God's doing it as I'm actively engaged in His work in the world. God's doing, but He only does it as we are exerting effort by faith in His Word and looking by faith to Christ and His Gospel accomplishment. That's what Paul prays for them. First, he prays that they would be counted worthy of their call. Second, that God would fulfill every desire for goodness in them. And third, that He would fulfill the work of faith with power in them. Now, he tells them the reason. This is why I'm praying this way for you. There's three reasons I'm praying this. There's three requests I'm making. Now I'm going to tell you why I'm praying it. Verse 12, so that double glorification 
will happen. This is awesome. So that double glorification will happen. This is the ultimate purpose for which Paul prays for the church at Thessalonica and we could apply to every church that has ever existed that's a true one. This is the main point that we're trying to drill in on for today. It need not occupy many words, but it must occupy the uppermost place in our hearts. This is the goal of prayer. As our sermon title suggests, we must embrace this goal as the core motivation in our lives and in our praying. Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. And you glorified in Him. That's the dual purpose in this prayer. I love that Paul tells them what he prays. And I really love he tells them why he prays. This is the great end so that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and so that you will be glorified in Him. Let's look at both of these briefly. Verse 12, first, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. First thing I want to underline is the word you is second person plural. Y'all. You all. He's praying for the whole church. Now Paul would certainly desire for this great goal to be wrought in any individual Christian's life. But this prayer is on behalf of the whole church at Thessalonica. Friends, if you're ever wondering for something good to pray for this church, pray this. God, would You glorify the name of the Lord Jesus in Grace Church. Do that. This theme of Christ's glory is threaded throughout this letter. First and Second Thessalonians. Let me just give you Second Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 10, right before this prayer. Why is Jesus coming back? Quote, to be glorified in His saints. That's why He's coming back. And to be marveled at among all who have believed. He's coming to be glorified in His people. And He's coming so that His people will have their jaw drop at His marvelous beauty. That's why He's coming back. So Paul prays, knowing that that's the reason He's coming back, Oh, glorify Your name in them. Basically, he's saying, prove that they're Yours. Prove that they're the genuine article. Let Jesus be exalted in them now so that when He comes back, there'll be no discontinuity between who they are now and who they'll be upon His glorious return. So, verse 10 of chapter 1, in our verse, he prays that the name of Jesus will be glorified in the church. That's verse 12 of chapter 1. Verse 14 of chapter 2, Paul teaches that the whole reason God called us through the Gospel, what a phrase, is so that we may gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why He saved us. That's the reason Paul prays in this ultimate way. I know you're doing a billion things, Lord. Many of them I'll never know or see. Thank you for all you're doing. But I'm agreeing with you in prayer. Do this especially. Exalt Jesus' name in them. It's really all about Him. Chapter 3, verse 1, it's His Word. Paul longs for the Word of the Lord to spread rapidly and be glorified. What we're looking at here is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of every true believer, but specifically, we're looking at it in the local church in verse 12. 
That is, every believer and therefore every church desires for Jesus to be glorified in us. I don't know what it is that attracts you to whatever church you're attracted to. Or for those who are members here, what it is that compels you to be one. But this is ultimate. It must be about Him. If it's true of us individually, that is, if we desire for the name of Jesus to be glorified in us, if it's true of us individually as Christ followers, it is of necessity then true of us also as communities of Christians, of local churches. That's what we mean in our vision statement when we say we exist to glorify God. How? By treasuring Jesus Christ. We believe that is the primary way God is glorified in His people. That is that we join God in doing what God has been doing from all of eternity. Namely, the enjoyment of His own glory reflected in the face of His Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's praying that it will happen in the church at Thessalonica. Look, we're bad at a lot of stuff. Let's be good at this one. Exalting Jesus. Keeping Him first. Not one click off true north. Not be distracted from simple, pure devotion to Jesus. Richard Phillips commenting on this phrase said, our worship of Jesus in the radiance of His unveiled glory at His second coming will provide the ultimate satisfaction of our souls. That's what verse 10 is about. When Jesus comes back and He's glorified in all His people and we all marvel at Him, that's what it's about Let me read it again. Our worship of Jesus in the radiance of His unveiled glory at His second coming will provide the ultimate satisfaction of our souls of which, verse 12, our present worship of Him on earth is the closest foretaste we get. Why do we love church? Because in my sinful stupidity, I keep forgetting the Gospel. But when I come back here and I hear 10 or 12 or 15 brothers and sisters pray again that we would believe the Gospel and we pray for members in our church and we have sidebar conversations and we hear the Word preached all over again, God does the miracle. And Richard Phillips says, this is the closest foretaste you get of the glory that's going to be revealed to you when Jesus comes back. Now, tell me again another good reason That, oh, I was just too tired. Or uh, it was a little too inconvenient to get there. Life and death, brothers and sisters. The glory of Jesus being exalted among us keeps us believing the Gospel. So that's the first reason Paul tells them, ultimately, I'm praying for you because I want the name of our Lord Jesus to be glorified in plural, you all. The name represents the character of God. All that is true of Him. His name represents all of His infinite perfections. He is infinite in them all. His name is shorthand for all that is true of God. And He wants that Jesus to be glorified. Second, He says in a little phrase in verse 12, His dual glorification purpose Not only that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, but do you see this little phrase? So that you will be glorified in Him. You glorified in Him. 
The you in this phrase is also second person plural. You all. I'm praying that every last one of you Thessalonian Christians who are combined in that little local church and accountable to each other will be glorified in Jesus. It's the end of all God's saving purposes. That the glory of God will forever saturate you every cell of your body, every fiber of your being, every motive of your heart. The whole reason God dispatched His Son from heaven to suffer and die a cruel death to be the only acceptable atonement for rebels like us so that in His resurrection, God could make trophies of His grace. The reason He did it is so that He could have for Himself, a people for His own prized possession to show off to the galaxies that He is of such a nature and is such a God that He can do such a thing as rescue us. And not only that, reconcile us. And not only that, but beautify us with the beauty of His Son. You will one day be as bright as Christ. Not intrinsically, not equally, not in every way. You will never be deified, but you will be contaminated with the beauty of Jesus from the inside out. Though we once had every spot and stain and wrinkle, we will be presented before our great God and Savior by His own doing, holy and blameless, and beyond reproach. We will be cleansed. The Bible uses the word catharized. The catharizing power of Jesus will cleanse us completely of every spot, every stain. There will be no capacity to sin. You will not sin in heaven because you will not be able to do it. You will be totally, as I said, contaminated with the purity of God's Son as far as the curse is found. So far will be the reach of God's glorifying grace in not you, that's true, but in us. If you believe the person sitting next to you is on the train to glory, it will definitely impact the way you relate to them. These things matter for how we live here and now. If we truly believed that our brothers and our sisters whose names and faces are in our church's prayer directory would be with us 10 trillion years from now, irradiating the beauty of Christ, it would dictate everything about everything. About the way we relate to each other and serve one another and serve together for the glory of Jesus in our world. It would dictate how we worship together. It would strip us of every inhibition to talk about our Savior. It would help us in the way we resolve conflict. How we consider one another more important than ourselves, How we persevere under trial. All the sufferings we face. Every other challenge that comes to our life. John Calvin about this phrase says, Paul goes further than what he said earlier. The name of Jesus being glorified in you. Paul goes further than that. More especially worthy of our notice that those who have advanced the glory of Christ will be glorified in Christ. 
The two go hand in hand. Who's headed for that kind of glory? The people in whom the name of Jesus is glorified. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know that he's praying for their future, final glorification. He wanted to help them do what Peter wrote to his, his audience to fix their hope completely on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To set their sights on that bright day when Jesus will be all in all for all of His people. This kind of glory is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. Jesus speaks about it for Himself when He says in phrases that take a few decades to meditate on before we even begin to get to the surface. Therefore, when He had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. That's a whole lot of glory in two verses. That's John 13. And that's where you're headed. That's where we're headed. And Paul prays that it will be so. Not only that the name of Jesus would be glorified in them and they would be glorified in Him, as I mentioned earlier in chapter 2, he picks it up again. He can't get it out of his mouth. He prays in verse 14 of chapter 2 that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, we get the point. Will you stop saying it? No, I will not stop saying it because it is the point of all points. It is the whole reason that redemptive history exists. It's the great aim of the Gospel. It's the end of all God's saving purposes. When you want to know why you should pray, here's the answer. Give them the glory of Christ. Let Jesus' name be glorified in them. It's so strong in Paul's letters, it is a dominating theme that comes out of his pen every time he writes because he knows that it will happen. And he knows when it will happen. Before we leave this point, I want to show that in the preceding verses, Paul connects this great statement about glory in verse 12 to what he had talked about in verses 6-10. to It will happen, but Paul knows also when it will happen. It will happen at the return of the Lord Jesus. This will be the most decisive moment in world history. It will be a conclusive moment. The argument will be over. The Lordship of Jesus over all creatures and all governments will then, finally and forever, be settled. When every eye sees Christ the King split the sky, there will be no mistaking who He is, what He has done, and why He has returned. Unfortunately, and I say that with a broken heart, it will be everlastingly too late for all who had not yet yielded to him. 
Verses 6 to 10 speak of this line of demarcation that will be drawn by the Lord Jesus when He returns. No one will be able to apply for a passport to to travel across that line. Verse 6, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. Verse 8, Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these, verse 9, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Concerning verse 8, the negative dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. Those are one thing. Obedience to the Gospel yields knowing God. Not knowing God is resultant of not obeying the Gospel. R.C. Sproul wrote about that phrase, the Gospel. The Gospel must be accepted, believed, and obeyed. Its decisive command is for, listen to this, absolute surrender to God through the peace made by Jesus Christ. If you haven't given Him all of you, you haven't given Him any of you. I'm not saying you're perfectly sanctified and you always perfectly obey that Gospel, but fundamental first step obedience to the Gospel is Jesus, you get all of me. And to those who do not obey that Gospel, verse 8 says, upon the return of Jesus, He will deal out retribution. Friends, the Gospel is, as I have alluded to and said already several times, the good news that hell-deserving sinners like you and me have been given amnesty in one and only one person. You must totally Entrust yourself to the risen Jesus. You must do that. You must abhor your sin. Detest it. It should be nauseating to you because it is that for which your Savior died. Not only must you abhor your sin, you must abhor your self-righteousness, which is the most insidious stench of sin. The best stuff you and I have ever done is the reason God should send us to hell. My most holy ten seconds, I don't trust for half of one second. You must throw yourself fully and completely on the risen Jesus who became a curse for you on the cross, was condemned by God, Romans 8-2, at Calvary, who hung for you as the sacrifice God required for the payment of your sin for His justice to be satisfied and for your crime to be atoned for. Jesus is the only way. And Paul says, if you don't obey that Gospel, if you don't throw yourself on the mercy of this risen Jesus, if you don't yield to Him fully, body, soul, and mind, He's going to deal out retribution. When He returns, verse 9 says, these people... Not might, not maybe, 
will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. This is awful, friends. And if I didn't love you, I wouldn't say it. It's awful. It's a destruction without ever being fully destroyed. It is, as the verse says, an eternal destruction. We're talking about being destroyed again and again for eternity. And that is the only just penalty for those who will not flee to the abundant provision that Christ has made for you. Every generation has tried to explain away hell. You can look in your theological history books and you can find all kind of contrived ways that people try to get around the biblical language. Our generation is no different. Every generation in human history has tried to explain away the eternality or the existence or sometimes both of hell. The Roman Catholic Church and the papacy have tried to soften the biblical truth with concocted categories like purgatory. But dear friends, I love you enough to tell you that Scripture teaches that there are two and only two options for the eternal destiny of all peoples. It's outlined very clearly in verses 6-10. through 10. For some, there is retribution, verse 8, and eternal destruction, verse 9. And for others, there is glory and marveling, verse 10. The atrocities of hell cannot be overstated. This passage, as I said, speaks of retribution, eternal destruction, so I urge you to do verse 8. Obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who do, guess what you get at the end? This is one of those many passages in the Bible that help us to see that what we're saved for is better than what we're saved from. Guess what you get if you obey the Gospel of the Lord Jesus? You get Jesus. That's what you get. You get the glory of Jesus, verse 10. You get the name of Jesus glorified, verse 12. You get to be glorified in Jesus, verse 12. You get chapter 2, verse 14 to gain the glory of Jesus. And if you don't want Him, we have nothing to offer you. He's the sum total of saving knowledge, as David Dixon said so many years ago. And He's coming back, verse 10, so that your jaw will drop so that you'll be marveling at Him. Along with, I love this, all who have believed. Guess how many people are going to think Jesus is the most beautiful person that they have ever seen upon His return? All the people who believe the Gospel. We're going to be like the Queen of Sheba before Solomon and Chronicles. Every true Christian will be like her at the return of our Savior. We will be breathless at His beauty and that will endure forever. Well, finally, and we close here, verse 12. He tells them, ah, he's been moved to pray. Those three reasons. He tells them three gigantic things. He does pray, verse 11. He tells them the ultimate end for which he prays. And then he tells them that it must happen by the enabling power of God. Verse 12. This is the required fuel. If any of this is going to happen, it's going to happen verse 12b, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The enabling power of God. 
according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know how you're going to finish the race toward Christ without fizzling out, defecting on your faith, making shipwreck of your faith, without abandoning Christ, without denying the Gospel. How are you going to make it to the end? I hope to help you despair of every effort you could make. How are you going to make it to the end? I don't want to increase your reasons. I want to diminish them. I want to make you hopeless apart from one great hope. The grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that phrase. This is the enabling power. This is the required fuel. That what God requires of us, God also provides for us. The ability to hang on to Jesus is provided by Jesus. <laughs> he purchased that grace at Calvary. And He'll keep you to the end. It's more about Him, obviously, than us. And I absolutely love this, this grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love Piper's definition of grace. The grace of God is the work of God to give sinners the right and the power to glorify God without to delight in God without obscuring the glory of God. Grace is God letting you worship God without you tarnishing the glory of God. That's what grace is. It's not just a little extra that you need so that God will like you. It's everything you must have so that you can commune with Him in a way that actually glorifies Him. Jesus is full of this grace and truth. And Paul wants them to know the fuel necessary, the required octane in the tank for the name of Jesus to be glorified, for us to be glorified, for these three great prayer requests to be answered, for them to keep on going in perseverance under trials and persecutions and afflictions. The enabling power is the grace of God. When you see God's people suffering persecution or a church experiencing challenges, Think back to Thessalonica. When you see members of the church extorting other members or falsely using them in greediness, extorting their generosity like was happening in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, pray. But don't first pray for relief. Not a bad thing to request. First, direct your prayers toward the ultimate end of God's saving purposes. The glorification of the name of Jesus. It's amazing how that prayer reorients everything else we pray for. Do that mainly. Okay, and if you want to use this for that, so be it. Or if you would, by grace, change these circumstances and still do that, so be it. But whatever it costs for that to happen, do that. It just changes the way we pray. That Jesus would be glorified. Pray for final glorification for the saints. If you're at odds with somebody, you're concerned about their spiritual well-being or you see them drifting into lukewarmness and spiritual lethargy and anemic and shriveling up and not nourished in the faith, then, then pray that God would, would keep them believing the Gospel. Pray that they would one day be glorified in Jesus. Well, that's the application. Would you join me as we pray this passage as our conclusion? Let's pray together. Father, to this end, we pray for Grace Church that You, our God, will count us worthy of Your calling. That You would fulfill every desire for goodness 
and the work of faith with power. And we pray that You would do all those wonderful things so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in us. And so that we will be glorified in Him according to the grace that belongs to You and the grace that flows from our Lord Jesus that He purchased at Calvary.